If you would like our free newsletters on various religious topics, just send us an email at cdebater at aol.com and free newsletters will be sent to you by mail. Just provide your postal address in your email. The following are samples of some of the newsletters we have available. Does God Believe in Atheists? Part 1 Seventh-day Adventism True or False? The Agony of Deceit The Origins of Muhammad's Religion Spiritual Warfare Are Psychic Mediums Communicating with Ghosts or Demonic Spirits? Testimony to the Eternal Godhead, the Trinity. From Tradition to Truth, a Priest's Story. An Evaluation of the Oneness Pentecostal Movement. Mormonism, Counterfeit Christianity. Turn or Burn. Jehovah's Witnesses, Deceived Deceivers. Links to these newsletters can also be found at our website www.biblequery.org Once on the home page, simply click on the menu icon at the upper left-hand corner. Then click on the Newsletters button. Feel free to print them out. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Referring to the entire concept of the papacy and papal infallibility, the great Princeton theologian Charles Hodge said, If any in their sluggishness are disposed to think that a perpetual body of infallible teachers would be a blessing, all must admit that the assumption of infallibility by the ignorant, the erring, and the wicked must be an evil inconceivably great. The Romish theory, if true, might be a blessing. If false, it must be an awful curse. It is our position that the theory is most definitely false, and hence is, as Hodge put it, an awful curse for those trapped in its power. We turn now to the fact that history itself demonstrates beyond all possible controversy that the Christian church has not historically understood that Peter was appointed by Jesus Christ to be vicar of Christ on earth, nor that he was granted a plenitude of jurisdictional authority over all the church. The Great Vatican Council of the last century taught the following as a matter of Christian doctrine. Please listen closely. Quote, At open variance with this clear doctrine of Holy Scripture, as it has been ever understood by the Catholic Church, are the perverse opinions of those who, while they distort the form of government established by Christ the Lord and His Church, deny that Peter, in his single person, preferably to all the other apostles, whether taken separately or together, was endowed by Christ with a true and proper primacy of jurisdiction, or of those who assert that the same primacy was not bestowed immediately and directly upon blessed Peter himself, but upon the Church and through the Church on Peter as her minister. If anyone, therefore, shall say that blessed Peter the Apostle was not appointed the prince of all the apostles and the visible head of the whole church militant, or that the same directly and immediately received from the same our Lord Jesus Christ a primacy of honor only and not of true and proper jurisdiction, let him be anathema." End quote. This is truly a monumental claim. The same council spoke of interpreting Scripture solely in harmony with the unanimous consent of the fathers. As we shall see, the very concept of such a thing as the unanimous consent of the fathers with reference to this topic is a sheer myth. No such thing exists. Instead, the majority of the early fathers are opposed to the Roman claims. Before examining the large amount of evidence that speaks against the Roman claims, let us note a number of the commonly committed errors made by Roman apologists in attempting to defend their position. Error number one I call anachronistic interpretation, anachronistic interpretation. That is the reading into the early fathers ideas, beliefs, and concepts that were not a part of their world and did not develop until much, much later. Keep an eye out for that error. Error number two I call the Peter Syndrome. This refers to the propensity on the part of many Roman Catholic apologists to find any statement about Peter in the writings of an early father and apply this to the Bishop of Rome. 
There are many exalted statements made about Peter by men such as Cyprian or Chrysostom. However, it does not follow that these statements about Peter have anything at all to do with the Bishop of Rome. The Roman apologist must demonstrate that for such statements to be meaningful, that the Father under discussion believed that the Bishop of Rome alone is the sole, unique successor of Peter, so that any such exalted language about Peter is to be applied in that Father's thinking to the Bishop of Rome alone. If such a basis is not provided, references to Peter are irrelevant. And error number three I call ignoring the broad context. This error involves the Roman apologists in asserting a particular father believed in the modern theory of Roman primacy even when that same father made statements or took actions that demonstrate that he did not, in fact, hold to any such concept. Let me give you some brief examples of these errors. One of the most often cited passages from an early father that allegedly shows a Roman primacy is the saying of Augustine from Sermon 131, Rome has spoken, the case is closed. I have seen this phrase used over and over again without context as evidence that Augustine held a modern Roman Catholic view of papal primacy. Yet, as Roman Catholic historian Robert Eno notes, quote, it was at this point that the famous words of Augustine were uttered as misquoted, Roma locuta est, causa finita est. Actually, he said, and here's what Augustine really said, already two councils on this question have been sent to the apostolic see, and replies have also come from there. The case is closed. Would that the error might sometime be finished as well. But beyond any quibbling over precise words, the greater irony is the use of this quotation in later centuries. We have all heard it used in the following sense. Rome has made its decision. All further discussions must cease. End quote. Hence, not only is the citation not accurate in and of itself, but the import is given by many Roman apologists is inaccurate as well. Von Derlinger noted in regard to these same passages, quote, the Pelagian system was in his eyes, that is Augustine's eyes, so manifestly and deadly in error that there seemed to him no need even of a synod to condemn it. The two African synods and the Pope's assent to their decrees appeared to him more than enough, and so the matter might be regarded as at an end. That a Roman judgment in and of itself was not conclusive, but that a plenary council was necessary for that purpose, he had himself emphatically maintained, and the conduct of Pope Zosimus could only confirm his opinion, end quote. Von Derlinger mentions Pope Zosimus, and well he should have, for Zosimus provides us with a glowing example of how a father like Augustine can be misused by less than honest historical apologists. Upon becoming Pope in 417, Zosimus reversed the course of his predecessor and fell into the sway of Pelagius and Celestius. J.N.D. Kelly notes, quote, In brusque letters he informed the African Episcopate that both heretics had cleared themselves, criticizing the action taken against them as over-hasty and based on unscrupulous witnesses. The outraged reaction of the African bishops, who frankly told him that innocent sentence must stand, forced Zosimus to beat a retreat. The Pope had no option but to make a complete climb down and addressed to the bishops of East and West a lengthy document known as his Tractoria in which, reversing his previous stand, he anathematized the Pelagians and their teachings, end quote. In fact, it is in this context that Augustine said, when faced with Zosimus' about-faced, Christ has spoken, the case is closed. So much for the first citation proving papal primacy. We note that not only does this incident illustrate how easy it is to proof-text the fathers without reference to the real meaning of their words, but we shall see that Zosimus will provide us with another example of the truth of our denial of the historicity of the concept of papal supremacy, which we shall examine later. My second example of a common error made by Roman apologists is found in the words of the Council of Chalcedon, often quoted in Roman works, Peter has spoken through Leo. We are told that here we have clear evidence of the belief that the early church viewed Leo as the unique and supreme successor of Peter. Yet, is this the case? Not at all. If we take the time to examine the issue, we discover, that, first of all, that Leo had written his work, the Tome, prior to the Synod held in 449, but it had not caused that Synod to follow Leo's position. Leo sent his legates to Chalcedon with a letter that instructed the council not to bother deliberating, since his Tome was a sufficient statement of the faith. John Meyendorf, the great histori uh, Orthodox historian, noted regarding this, quote, no wonder that his legates were not allowed to read this unrealistic and embarrassing letter before the end of the 16th session, at a time when acrimonious debates on the issue had already taken place. Obviously, no one in the East considered that a papal fiat was sufficient to have an issue closed. Furthermore, the debate showed clearly that the tome of Leo to Flavian was accepted on merits and not because it was issued by the Pope. 
Upon the presentation of the text in Greek translation during the second session, part of the assembly greeted the reading with approval. Peter has spoken thus through Leo, they shouted. But the bishops from the Illyricum in Palestine fiercely objected against passages, which they considered as incompatible with the teachings of St. Cyril of Alexandria. It took several days of commission work to convince them that Leo was not opposing Cyril. The episode clearly shows that it was Cyril, not Leo, who was considered at Chalcedon as the ultimate criterion of Christological orthodoxy. Leo's views were under suspicion of Nestorianism as late as the fifth session, when the same Illyrians, still rejecting those who departed from Cyrillian terminology, shouted, The opponents are Nestorians! Let them go to Rome! The final formula approved by the council was anything but a simple acceptance of Leo's text. It was a compromise which could be imposed on the fathers when they were convinced that Leo and Cyril expressed the same truth, only using different expressions." End quote. And a footnote is provided to the above shout of the fathers, which reads, quote, The acclamation, Peter has spoken thus through Leo, often quoted as a triumph of Roman authority, seems to have actually been a defensive reaction against objections by the Illyrians. End quote. So here we have what was in fact a defensive reaction raised in defense of Leo's position against the objections of many of the bishops present taken by many modern Roman Catholic apologists as evidence of a primacy that the very Council of Chalcedon not only denied by its very existence but by its famous Canon 28 which we shall examine at a later point. Now, in the brief time I have available to me, I shall attempt to address two major topics. First, I shall very briefly address the issue of the patristic interpretation of the key passages upon which the papacy claims to be founded, and will demonstrate that the modern Roman interpretation of these passages flies in the face of the patristic understanding. Then I shall begin presenting just a sampling of the large body of evidence that demonstrates that the early church did not view Peter as the vicar of Christ in the Roman understanding, and hence they did not see the bishop of Rome as the sole successor of Peter, nor the head of the universal church with jurisdictional authority over all of Christ's flock. We turn to the pivotal passage, you may be getting tired of it by now, Matthew chapter 16. When we look at the patristic information regarding this passage, we find a wide variety of interpretations. It is easy to understand why many Roman Catholic scholars felt it necessary to leave communion with Rome following Vatican I for any person even slightly familiar with patristic interpretation and slightly concerned about being truthful would never, ever say that the Church has always interpreted this passage as it is interpreted by that council. The first thing to note is that there simply is no one understanding of this passage in the early fathers. And what is the importance of this? Dr. Salmon said, quote, But none of these can be reconciled with the interpretation which regards this text as containing the charter of the church's organization. A charter would be worthless if it were left uncertain to whom it was addressed or what powers it conferred. So that the mere fact that the fathers differed in opinion as to what was meant by this rock and that occasionally the same father wavered in his opinion on this subject proves that none of them regarded this text as one establishing a perpetual constitution for the Christian church. End quote. Next we note that the central aspect of Rome's understanding of this passage, specifically the identification of Peter as the rock, is in fact the minority understanding of the early church. The French Roman Catholic Lannoy surveyed the patristic evidence and found 17 citations supporting the concept that Peter is the rock of Matthew 16. Please note that this does not mean that all 16 of these fathers also felt that this meant that the bishop of Rome was a pope, but only that they saw Matthew 16 and the phrase, this rock, is referring to Peter. However, Lannoy found 16 citations that identified the rock as Christ himself. He found 8 that identified all the apostles together as forming the rock of Matthew 16. And he found 44 citations, including that, uh, indicating that the rock of Matthew 16 was the confession of faith made by Peter in Jesus Christ. Now, if we add these numbers together, we find that the Roman position, which claims to have always been the faith of the Catholic Church, actually represents, in Lannoy's survey, 20% of the fathers. 80% of the time, then, the early fathers expressed, in Vatican I's words, perverse opinions at the very best. I might note in passing that even as late as the Council of Trent, one can find that council referring to this passage as referring to the faith that Peter expressed. But should one Roman Catholic survey not be enough, we turn to the Jesuit Maldonatus, who writes, quote, there are among ancient authors some who interpret on this rock, that is, on this faith, or on this confession of faith, in which thou hast called me the Son of the living God, as Hilary, and Gregory Neeson, and Chrysostom, and Cyril of Alexandria. St. Augustine, going still further away from the true sense, interprets on this rock, that is, on myself, Christ, because Christ was the rock. But origin, on this rock, that is to say, on all men who have the same faith, end quote. 
Was Maldonatus correct? Well, let's look, for example, at Hillary's statement regarding Matthew 16, 18, as found in his work, De Trinitate, book 6, chapter 37, quote, This faith it is, which is the foundation of the church. Through this faith the gates of hell cannot prevail against her. This is the faith which has the keys of the kingdom of heaven, end quote. Indeed, as one reads all of chapter 37, one finds Hillary referring to each of the prime texts upon which the papacy is built, including John 21 and Luke 22, and yet not once mentioning the papacy. Can you imagine a modern Roman apologist citing all three of these passages and not mentioning the papacy? From whence cometh this perverse notion that the passage here refers to the faith of Peter's confession, not to Peter himself? Was it not, as we've been told, the common belief of Christians for centuries before that this passage referred to Peter, thus establishing the papacy? How could Hillary be ignorant of such a fundamental concept? And how could he be joined by the likes of John Chrysostom or Gregory Nazianzus? How could these great men and preachers be ignorant of such a basic truth, unless perhaps it's not such a basic truth at all? And what of the great Augustine? Surely many are aware of his statement in his Retractionis regarding this passage and its meaning, and I shall not take the time to read it yet once again. I would point out, however, that Augustine left his readers to decide how they would interpret the passage. May I ask us all to think seriously about what it means that the great Bishop of Hippo, Augustine, could think that how one views this passage is a matter of freedom when Vatican I tells us it is a matter upon which the anathema can and should be used. Can we not see in this the tremendously huge amount of evolution that has taken place between the early part of the 5th century and the latter part of the 19th? Indeed, we can. The Roman interpretation of Matthew 16 is vulnerable on many other points as well. In fact, it requires of us faith in a long, intricate, and highly questionable chain of propositions. First, Jesus must be referring to Peter as the rock. Second, this must involve a giving of authority to Peter that is given to no one else. Third, this passage must somehow provide to us something about successors to the Roman position to have any meaning at all. Yet the idea of succession in Matthew 16 is simply absent from the understanding of the early fathers. As Oscar Kuhlmann said, quote, We thus see that the exegesis that the Reformation gave was not first invented for their struggle against the papacy. It rests upon an older patristic tradition, end quote. And the great historian von Derlinger in his work, The Pope and the Council, said, quote, of all the fathers who interpret these passages in the Gospels, Matthew 16, 18, John 21, 17, not a single one applies them to the Roman bishops as Peter's successors. How many fathers have busied themselves with these texts, yet not one of them whose commentaries we possess, Origen, Chrysostom, Hilary, Augustine, Cyril, Theodoret, and those whose interpretations are collected in Catinas, has dropped the faintest hint that the primacy of Rome is the consequence of the commission and promise to Peter. Not one of them has explained the rock or foundation on which Christ would build his church, of the office given to Peter to be transmitted to his successors. But they understood by it either Christ himself or Peter's confession of faith in Christ, often both together. Or else they thought Peter was the foundation equally with all the other apostles, the twelve being together the foundation stones of the church. The fathers could the less recognize, listen closely, in the power of the keys and the power of binding and loosing any special prerogative or lordship of the Roman bishop, inasmuch as, and listen very closely, gentlemen, what is obvious to anyone at first sight, they did not regard the power first given to Peter and afterwards conferred on all the apostles as anything peculiar to him or hereditary in the line of Roman bishops. And listen closely, they held the symbol of the keys as meaning just the same as the figurative expression of binding and Loosing, end quote. To this we add the authority of Karl Fried Frilich, who noted that until the time of Innocent III in the 12th century, over a millennia after Christ, quote, the understanding of these Petrine texts by biblical exegetes in the mainstream of the tradition was universally non-primatial, end quote, that is, not with reference to a primacy of the Pope in Rome. As time is fleeting, we pass from the interpretation of biblical passages to the numerous statements and actions by early fathers and councils, which demonstrate to the unbiased, and I would pray today, even to the biased, observer, that the Roman concept of Petrine primacy, preserved in the person of the Bishop of Rome, is a belief that was not at any time in the past, nor is it today, the universally held belief of the Christian people. I begin with a fact that is often overlooked by defenders of the Roman concept. Joseph F. Kelly, in the Concise Dictionary of Early Christianity, said, quote, 
it is likely that in the earliest Roman community, a college of presbyters rather than a single bishop provided the leadership, end quote. This is echoed by Ferguson, the Encyclopedia of Early Christianity, and the eminent church historian J.N.D. Kelly concurs, saying, with reference to an alleged early pope, quote, his actual functions and responsibilities can only be surmised, for the monarchial or one-man episcopate had not yet emerged in Rome, end quote. This is in reference to a period all the way into the middle of the second century. Ask yourself this question. If Vatican I was right, and if Christians have always believed that Peter alone was given a primacy, and that Peter alone was given the keys, and that Peter's successors are alone to be found in fullness in the bishops of Rome, why would the church at Rome go for nearly a full century without a single bishop as leader, instead using the primitive and most biblical concept of a plurality of elders? John Henry Cardinal Newman, probably the most noted Roman Catholic scholar of the 19th century in his work in Essay on the Development of Christian Doctrine, quoted approvingly from Barrow's 1836 work against papal supremacy. He knew that it was quite right for the Protestant to point out that there are historical facts that are contrary to a functioning, widely recognized papacy in the early church. For example, he agreed with Barrow that had the pagans been aware of the institution of the papacy, they would surely have raised great objections to it, but such objections are not to be found anywhere. And, he, and very importantly, he quoted with approval Barrow's statement, quote, It is most prodigious that, in the disputes managed by the fathers against the heretics, the Gnostics, Valentinians, etc., they should not, even in the first place, allege and urge the sentence of the universal pastor and judge as a most evidently conclusive argument, as the most efficacious and compendious method of convincing and silencing them, end quote. Note what Newman admits that it is decisive that the early fathers, when debating against the heretics, such as the Gnostics, did not appeal to the papacy as judge and arbiter of theological issues. But if modern Roman claims are correct, how can this be? Is not the papacy the ancient and constant faith of the universal church? Have not Christians always understood the scriptures as teaching the existence of the papacy at Rome? The silence of the church in this instance is devastating evidence against papal claims. The Council of Nicaea provides us yet another fact that is contrary to papal claims. It is we found in Can 6 of that council, and it reads as follows, quote, Let the ancient customs in Egypt, Libya, and Pentapolis prevail, that the bishop of Alexandria have jurisdiction in all these, since the like is customary for the bishop of Rome also. Likewise, in Antioch and the other provinces, let the churches retain their privileges, end quote. Notice that the Bishop of Rome is not here given universal sovereignty, but is instead seen as an equal, one with jurisdiction in a particular geographical area, and folks, that geographical area was limited, not worldwide. Yalin noted regarding the Council of Nicaea that, quote, the first ecumenical council knew nothing of the doctrine of papal supremacy, end quote, and with reference specifically to the language of Canon 6, quote, it is not what would be natural on the part of any assembly of Christian bishops who believe that Christ had given to the Roman See a plenitude of jurisdiction which differed not only in degree but in kind from that of any other see whatsoever, end quote. In Canon 6, nothing is mentioned about Peter or the Vicar of Christ. Indeed, I note in passing that the first man audacious enough to allow himself to be called Vicar of Christ seemingly was Galatius I in 495, half a millennia after Christ came to earth and 450 years after the true Vicar of Christ came to earth, that being the Holy Spirit of God. But as Kelly notes, the use of the title Vicar of Christ did not become current for popes until the reign of Hadrian IV in the middle of the 12th century. About returning to the topic of the Council of Nicaea, I wish to point out that here at probably the most important council in all of church history, we not only do not find any papal supremacy, we find quite a bit of evidence that is contrary to such claims. First, why did no one inform Constantine that all he had to do was send word to the Bishop of Rome and obtain an infallible ruling from the Vicar of Christ and the person of the Pope so that all Christians everywhere would obey? Obviously because no one had thought such a thought. Constantine called the council together, again seemingly ignorant that he should have let the Bishop of Rome do that, and again no one seemed to mind, as they had never thought that they needed the Bishop of Rome to do such a thing in the first place. The current Bishop of Rome at that time, Sylvester, did not attend, pleading old age, but sent two presbyters in his place. History records that Rome had little or nothing to do with the events in Nicaea. It was not the Bishop of Rome who undertook the defense of the Nicene faith during the years of Arian ascendancy that followed Nicaea, but Athanasius, the Bishop of Alexandria. Indeed, one might note in passing that while Athanasius was forced from his see five times, yet remained unbowed, Liberius, the bishop of Rome, yielded and signed the Arianized Sirmium Creed. Be that as it may, the very fact that the Council of Nicaea was convoked is a strange thing indeed, if in fact Roman claims are true. Would it not have been much easier to simply ask the Pope for a ruling on such a central doctrine? 
but history will not allow for such simplicities. Even when Nicaea had concluded its proceedings, its creed had to fight for survival for 60 years thereafter, despite the fact that Roman bishops, excluding Liberius' lapse, defended it. Again, it is plain that just because the Bishop of Rome took a particular position was no guarantee that all the Christians would follow suit. And why is this? Because all the Christians did not look to the Roman bishop as the final authority in matters of faith and morals. Over a century later, we find more indication of the absence of absolute papal supremacy at the Council of Chalcedon. Here we find the famous Canon 28, a canon that Rome resisted and for obvious reasons. I read to you in part, quote, We do enact and decree the same things concerning the privileges of the Most Holy Church of Constantinople, which is New Rome. For the Father has rightly granted privileges to the throne of Old Rome because it was the royal city. And the 150 most religious bishops gave equal privileges to the most holy throne of New Rome, justly judging that the city which is honored with the sovereignty and the senate and enjoys equal privileges with the old imperial Rome should in ecclesiastical matters also be magnified as she is and ranked next after her. End quote. Note well what is said here. First it is said that the fathers granted privileges to Rome. On what basis? Because of Matthew 16 and the bishops of Rome being the successor of Peter and Isaiah 22 and all that stuff? No, indeed. The privileges were granted to Rome because it was the royal city. And now Constantinople, being the seat of government, assumes such privileges which are bestowed logically on the church that resides in the capital of the empire. It is highly instructive to note the reaction of Rome to this canon when it was proposed to the Roman legates at the council that indicated that they had no instructions from Rome and withdrew. The canon was passed in their absence. The next day when they objected, their objections were dismissed. The commissioners bluntly declared the issue closed. All was confirmed by the council, they said, explicitly denying any papal right of veto. When Pope Leo heard about this, he was angry and rejected the canon. But on what ground did he reject it? This is very important. He did so on the basis of allegedly defending the older patriarchates, Alexandria and Antioch, and by so doing, of course, he was protecting Roman claims as well. Leo did not refuse to recognize the canon because it had been passed without his consent, but because he said that the canons contradicted the decrees of Nicaea, which he said would last forever and could be altered by no one. Did this end the dispute? Not at all. In fact, the Pope's resistance to the canon had no effect. The Quinisex Council in 681 confirmed all the Chalcedon canons without exception, and the Council of Florence repeated the same order found in the canon with Constantinople II. The canon appeared in the Syntagma in 14 titles in the 6th century, in all later Byzantine collections, and even in some 6th century copies of the oldest Latin canonical collections, the Prisca. Another indication from a conciliar action takes us back to good old Pope Zosimus that we mentioned before. I quote again from Meyendorf, quote, Finally in Africa, the disciplinary claims of Rome were passionately rebuked in 418. Examining the case of a presbyter deposed in Africa and received in Rome by Zosimus, the African bishops formally forbade appeals beyond the sea. Furthermore, writing to Pope Celestine in 420, the Africans proclaimed what amounted to a formal denial of any divine privileges of Rome. Who will believe, they stated, that our God can inspire justice in the inquiries of one man only, that is the Pope, and refuse it to innumerable bishops gathered in council? End quote. The fierce independence of North African bishops had a long history going back to the great martyr bishop of Carthage, Cyprian. Very shortly before his martyrdom, Cyprian presided over the Seventh Council of Carthage, which gives us the following information, and I quote, for neither does any of us set himself up as a bishop of bishops, nor by tyrannical terror does any compel his colleagues to the necessity of obedience, since every bishop, according to the allowance of his liberty and power, has his own proper right of judgment and can no more be judged by another than he himself can judge another. End quote. It is easy to recognize the reference to Stephen, the bishop of Rome with whom Cyprian had clashed in previous years in the rebuke of the title Bishop of Bishops. Why is this important? Cyprian is truly one of the greatest obstacles to any serious acceptance of Roman Catholic claims regarding papal primacy. While he is often cited by Roman apologists, it is only at the expense of the fullness of his teaching that this is done. You see, Cyprian was one of the minority of early fathers who saw Peter as the rock of Matthew 16. Indeed, he saw Peter as the symbol of ecclesiastical unity, and because of some of his words, if relieved of their context, can lend support to the Roman contentions he's often cited. However, a full examination of Cyprian's words and actions is the death knell for Roman pretensions. First, we know Cyprian's rejection of Stephen's claims to authority over the North African seas in his own words, quote, Neither can it rescind an ordination rightly perfected that Basilides, after the detection of his crimes, and the bearing of his conscience even by his own confession, went to Rome and deceived Stephen, our colleague, placed at a distance, and ignorant of what had been done, and of the truth, to canvas that he might be replaced unjustly in the episcopate from which he had been righteously deposed." End quote. 
Cyprian specifically rejected the intrusion of Stephen. How can this be if Cyprian saw Peter as the rock? The answer is devastating to Roman claims. Cyprian believed that every bishop, himself included, was fulfilling the role of Peter as the rock. In Epistle 26 of Cyprian, he makes this very claim, citing Matthew 16, 18 with a reference to all bishops, nowhere mentioning the bishop of Rome alone. Such passages led Meyendorf to note, quote, In fact, however, Cyprian's view of Peter's chair was that it belonged not only to the bishop of Rome, but to every bishop within each community. Thus, Cyprian used not the argument of Roman primacy, but that of his own authority as successor of Peter in Carthage, end quote. We can only agree wholeheartedly with the words of Dr. Cox, who, commenting on Cyprian's treatise on the unity of the church, said the following, quote, Compare this treatise of Cyprian, then, with any authorized treatise on the subject proceeding from modern Rome. It will be seen that the two systems are irreconcilable. Thus, in a few words, say the confession of Pius IV, quote, I acknowledge the Holy Catholic Apostolic Roman Church for the mother and mistress of all churches, and I promise true obedience to the Bishop of Rome, successor to St. Peter, Prince of the Apostles, and Vicar of Jesus Christ, end quote. This is the voice of Italy in the ninth century, but Cyprian speaks for ecumenical Christendom in the third, and the two systems are as contrary as darkness and light, end quote. It is no wonder then that Fermilion, Bishop of Caesarea, could write to Cyprian, joining in his condemnation of Pope Stephen, speaking of those who are at Rome vainly pretending the authority of the apostles and making schism for the, from the peace and unity of the church, and could go on to say, quote, I am justly indignant at this so open and manifest folly of Stephen, that he who boasts the place of his episcopate and contends that he holds the succession from Peter, on whom the foundations of the church were laid, should introduce many other rocks and establish new buildings of many churches, end quote. Such are but a few of the many historical facts that could be presented to you this evening. We could bring in Clement's epistle to the Corinthians, Ignatius' letter to the Roman church, Irenaeus' rebuke of the impetuous victor, Tertullian's mocking use of the phrase Pontifex Maximus, and many more items, all of which demonstrate that the concept that Peter was chosen by Christ as the vicar of Christ on earth, the head of the universal church, and that his successors are solely the bishops of Rome, is a historical novelty that took many centuries to develop. It is a claim that flies in the face of the early Christian leaders and as such is without merit. Thank you very much. I would like to remind the audience that the thesis of the second portion of this debate is the church has historically understood this to be true. Not the church from the 5th century forward or the church from the 12th century forward, but the church. The church as it was begun on the day of Pentecost. We read the following interesting citation from the Catholic Encyclopedia. Now, my opponent has stood up here and argued for 30 minutes that the primacy and infallibility, which is a logical conclusion of primacy of the Pope, has been vouchsafed to us in and throughout church history by various councils, citations, etc. We read this citation, however, from their own Roman Catholic Encyclopedia. One need not expect to find in the early centuries a formal and explicit recognition throughout the Christian church either of the primacy or the infallibility of the Pope in terms in which these doctrines are defined by the Vatican Council. No wonder it took him so long to search throughout to find it. His own encyclopedia says it can't be done. We present as further evidence the testimony of some of the early church fathers. According to Philip Schaff in his massive three-volume work, History of the Christian Church, we quote the following. From the time of St. Paul's epistle, 58 AD, when he bestowed high praise on the earlier Roman converts to the episcopate of Victor, 189 A.D., at the close of the second century, and the unfavorable account of Hippolytus, of uh, Pope Zephrinius and Pope Callistus, we have no express and direct information about the internal state of the Roman Church. This represents a gap of 130 years where we have no express and direct information about the internal state of the Roman Church. Now, Romanists try to find support for Roman authority in a letter that has been mentioned, a letter of Clement sent from Rome to Corinth around 97 AD. However, this letter of Clement does not have a word about the dominance of an alleged pope at Rome. It states, 
Ye therefore that laid the foundation of the sedition submit unto the presbyters and receive chastisement unto repentance, bending the knees of your heart. Not a word about bending to the Pope at Rome, rather submit to the presbyters. Notice Clement puts the Church of Rome in the same vulnerable position that he felt the Corinthians were in by saying, we are in the same list and the same contest awaits us, speaking of their temptations and trials. Some appeal is made to Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, around 110, and his so-called flattering language written to Rome in a letter. However, the same flattery is common to all the epistles of Ignatius, and I quote Ignatius, who is also called Theophorus, the the Theophorus, unto her which hath been blessed in greatness through the plenitude of God the Father, which has been foreordained before the ages to be forever unto abiding and unchangeable glory, united and elect in true passion by the will of the Father and of Jesus Christ our God, even unto the church which is in... You would expect Rome, wouldn't you, after that language? No, this letter is written to Ephesus, worthy of all felicitation, abundant greeting in Christ, and in blameless joy. Now to Rome, Ignatius writes, having the presidency of love, not, as Roman Catholic scholars want to say, presiding over the brotherhood. Also to Rome, Ignatius writes, presidency in the country of the region of the Romans, not, as it is alleged, presidency over the entire realm of Christendom. The actual words of Ignatius are having the presidency of love, that is being first in love, and having presidency in the country of the region of the Romans, not having presidency in the entire realm of Christendom. In his closing remarks to the church at Rome, Ignatius, remember writing in AD 110, gives us his understanding of exactly who would bishop the church at Antioch in his absence. He is on his way to Rome, and he says this in his letter. Remember in your prayers the church which is in Syria, which has God for its shepherd in my stead. Jesus Christ alone shall be its bishop. He and your love. We move forward in the church history to Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage, 200-258 A.D., and we find this amazing concession given to us by the Catholic Encyclopedia with respect to Cyprian's loyalty to Rome. And I quote, Cyprian undoubtedly entertained exaggerated views as to the independence of individual bishops, which eventually led him to serious conflict with Rome. I'll say... <laughs> Cyprian had serious conflict with Rome, and we'll talk more about that later. Here are a few comments from polemicists and apologists of the 3rd and 4th century. Origen was the first father to write a complete commentary on the Bible. He's from Alexandria, Egypt, and explained Matthew 16, 18 as follows. If you suppose that on this Peter alone the whole church is built by God, what would you say about John, the son of thunder, or about any other of the apostles? John Chrysostom, patriarch of Constantinople, explains, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, which means upon the faith of his confession. Upon this rock, Petrum, he did not say upon Peter, Petrum, nor upon a man, but upon his faith, Fidem, he has built his church. Jerome, writing in A.D. 40, official Bible translator, interpreter of the Church of Rome, writes in his commentary on Matthew, Thou art Peter Petrus, and upon this rock Petrum I will build my church. To Simon, who believed in the rock Petra, that is Christ, the name of Peter Petrus was given. The rock is Christ, who granted to his apostles that they too should be called rocks. Augustine, Bishop of Africa, the greatest of the Latin fathers, says, Therefore, he said, Thou art Peter, upon this rock which thou hast confessed, that is, upon myself, who am the Son of the living God, I will build my church. I will build my church. I will build you upon me, not me on you. The church is not built on men, but on Christ. Those who wish to be built upon men said, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, who is Peter. But others who did not wish to be built upon Peter, but upon the rock, said, I am of Christ. That's Augustine. Others who did not wish to be built upon Peter, but upon the rock, said, I am of Christ.
At the Seventh Ecumenical Council, 787 AD, Tiresias, Patriarch of Constantinople, explained the Petrine text as follows. The church has been founded upon the rock, namely upon Christ our Lord. In the second session of the same council, we find that Pope Adrian wrote that the Apostle Peter was thought worthy to confess that faith upon which the Church of Christ is founded. Of all the exegetical commentaries on Matthew 16, 18, written during the first thousand years of Christianity, not one mentions the papacy. The fathers would not even know how to spell the word. Not one mentions the primacy of the Bishop of Rome. Such an idea and interpretation did not exist even as a heresy. It did not exist even as a heresy. I wish now to cite, in addition to the above quotation, some of the sordid history of the Roman papacy, which destroys the whole concept of Roman papalness. This is what Rome does not like to tell you. The case of Pope Vigilius. Very interesting, Pope Vigilius, 500 to 555. He was Pope from 537 on forward. Prior to ascending to the papacy, Vigilius was extremely sympathetic to monophysitism, the popular Eastern African idea that Christ had only one nature. Despite giving indication to the contrary in his relationship with the Eastern Church, Vigilius upheld the Council of Chalcedon against monophysitism upon becoming the Bishop of Rome. Summoned to Constantinople, Vigilius changed his mind and supported monophysite position. But after receiving intense pressure from the West, Vigilius again changed his mind and retracted for uh, his position for monophysitism and wrote constitutum, which means against monophysitism in its essence. Then, upon the convening of the Second Council of Constantinople, which affirmed Justinian, who sought peace with monophysites, Vigilius changed his mind for the third time. So we have an alleged pope at Rome changing his mind three times on the issue of the nature of Jesus Christ. A, fad, a sad footnote on the history of Vigilius is he died on his way back to Rome. Hardly the vicar of Christ on earth. One wonders if he had made it back to Rome, would he have changed his mind yet for a fourth time? This is found suddenly in the New International Dictionary of Christian Church, page 1018 and following. There's also the case of Pope Honorius, the first, he's Pope from 625 to 638. This Pope of Rome was formally anathematized by the Third Council of Constantinople in 681. What was his crime? He was found guilty of sanctioning monothelitism, the idea that Christ had two natures but only one will. So much for Roman supremacy when they anathematize their own popes after they have died. There's also the revealing tale of the Avignon popes. From 1378 to 1409, the intriguing tale unfolds as follows. Pope Urban VI succeeded Gregory XI under the duress of a rabid Roman crowd on the steps of the Vatican. And the shout was, we will have a Roman pope or at least an Italian. On September 20th, 1378, the French cardinals elected a new pope claiming that Pope Urban should at once resign. Pope Urban was denounced as an apostate. The great Avignon schism began. Robert of Geneva, Clement VII, was proclaimed pope, and the papacy was moved to France. For the next 22 years, there were two popes, one in Rome and the other in Avignon. It was not until the Council of Pisa in 1409 that both the Roman pope and the Avignon pope were forced to abdicate. But all this accomplished was a new line, the so-called Pisan line of the papacy. Not until the Council of Constance in 1414 was the papacy finally united under Martin V. Three popes had to abdicate for this to happen. As a footnote, we would add that one of the three claimants to the papacy during the sordid history of the Roman Pope was John XXIII. He fled from the Council of Constance for fear of his life and was eventually captured and put under house arrest. I'd also want to put a footnote to this, that it was the same John the 23rd who offered safe conduct both to and from the council to one Johann Hus, the Bohemian reformer. Hus was jailed and burned at the stake on July 7th of the same year. His fire yet lives today in us. 
Now, there were some comments made early on by Mr. Butler in his opening presentation, which I'd like to address. There is appeal in historical data from the time period of the 3rd and 4th century on forward made by the Eastern Church to the bishop at Rome for their support. But John Meyendorf notes this in his work, Byzantine Theology. The Reformed papacy of the 11th century used a long-standing Western tradition of exegesis when it applied systematically and legalistically the passages on the role of Peter to the Bishop of Rome. This tradition was not shared by the East, yet it was not totally ignored by the Byzantines, some of whom used it occasionally, especially in documents addressed to Rome intended to win the Pope's sympathy, but it was never given an ultimate theological significance. In other words, when you wanted more political support, you appealed to Rome. You don't appeal to Rome because you think Rome is the vicar of Christ on earth or that it has the power passed down from the so-called keys of Peter, you appeal to it on the basis of political expediency. Also, I'd like to address the issue of Pope Victor. It, Mr. Butler said that Irenaeus had something to say. The great bishop of Lyons writing to Victor did certainly have something to say. He rebuked the rash actions of the Roman bishop and called him to remembrance of what had been done by his predecessors. We read, for neither could Ansatis persuade persuade Polycarp to forgo the observance inasmuch as these things had always been so observed by John and disciples of our Lord. The whole issue centers around when to worship during the uh, Easter period. The Eastern Church had their own date and Rome wanted to change it. So Victor excommunicated him and Irenaeus uh, came along and said, you can't do this. Just the fact that Irenaeus would come along and say you can't do this. Just the fact that the edict of Victor was totally ignored in this scenario leads us to suspect that neither Irenaeus nor those in the East held to papal supremacy at the time. I'd also like to remind the audience that Mr. Butler quoted from St. Clement in his letter to Rome early on in paragraph 63. I'd like to quote that for you. Therefore, it is the right for us to give heed to so great and so many examples. The word us is used over and over again in the letter, speaking of the presbyters at Rome to the presbyters and the people at Corinth, not the bishop of Rome. The word us is used. Thank you. I am amazed at the inaccurate citations, citations that aren't there, and the misrepresentations that I've heard so far this evening. Mr. Syngenis just said that I said it was a sheer myth there is evidence of the Roman Catholic position. If you'll go back and listen to what I said, I said that it is a sheer myth that there's such thing as unanimous consent of the fathers. And then he used that over and over again to beat me over the head. Straw men work that way. If you took that out of his presentation, he didn't have a whole lot left. He quoted from Irenaeus just now, but he didn't bother to tell you at the bottom of the very same page is an alternate quotation that destroys his point. He quoted from Tertullian, but he didn't tell you that Tertullian mocked the Bishop of Rome and called him Pontifex Maximus, which was an insult to Christians at that time. He only gave you a part of what Tertullian said about things like that. It's interesting to me, he then quoted from Athanasius, and Athanasius' statement about you need to read all of what someone says. It's interesting to me we haven't heard anything from Athanasius this evening about the papacy because obviously he didn't believe in these things. I told you that we need to be very, 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 very careful uh, about the Peter syndrome. And you were just given 15 minutes example of what the Peter syndrome is. The Peter syndrome is finding any statement about Peter by any father and just assuming that that's relevant to the topic. You just heard statement after statement after statement. In fact, it was, it was, he again misrepresented me. He said that I said, quoting from Aldonatus, and this, this amazes me because Mr. Syngenis has the tapes that I've, where I've given this quotation. Mr. Butler has the tapes where I gave this very information in debate against Jerry Mattisix years ago. So they've got the quotation. They've got the book. If they'd read the book, Maldonatus is talking about their interpretation of Matthew 16. Not what they said elsewhere about Peter. And so again, I might suggest that if they stayed in the room and listened to our presentation, they might know what we're talking about and be able to respond to our actual statements. Now, Mr. Syngenis then said, well, you know, the Trinity and the deity of Christ wasn't understood for a long time either. Folks, I want you to think about what you're being told there. The Trinity and the deity of Christ has no stronger basis in Scripture and no greater clarity than what the tortured exegesis of Matthew 16 and Isaiah 22 we've heard this evening. The central aspect of who God is is no more clear than trying to say that John 21 or Luke 22 teaches the papacy. My friends, 
This is dangerous, dangerous things. We are told that Pope Clement wrote the letter to the Corinthians. Where does Pope Clement ever say that? Scholars recognize that Clement never identifies himself. Secondly, it's written in the plural, and many people feel that Clement was actually the secretary for the elders in the church. So much for Pope Clement. It's interesting, we were told that, that this edition of the, uh, the Erdman set, which now published by Hendrickson, it takes things out. Please look into that. You see, there are a lot of later Latin editions that scholars have discovered. Remember, it's Rome that for a long time based its papal claims on forged decretals for years and years and years. Think about who has more of a reason to insert things. The later Latins or the original Greek. In fact, Mr. Uh, Butler stood up here and said, I forgot to tell you something that's on page 15 of this book. Well, there's page 15 of this book, and folks, I challenge you to go look at it. What he said is there, ain't. This sounds about the primacy of Rome here. It's not on page 15. You can uh, look at it yourself if you'd like. I have the same book you do. It's not there. Look at pages 15. In fact, what Mr. Butler forgot to tell you is on page 16, there is an excursus on the extent of the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome over the, over the suburban churches. It quotes from Hephala, who says, quote, It is evident that the council has not in view here the primacy of the Bishop of Rome over the whole church, but simply his power as a patriarch. Read it yourself, folks. I have no, no reason to mislead you on it. Read it yourself. Check out all the citations yourselves, because you're going to need to. For example, the quotation from the Council of Stardica, which is on page 417 of the same edition. The end of Mr. Butler's quotation was not in that citation at all. In fact, Sardica is a very interesting council. You might want to look into it and Rome's misuse of it later on and the North African bishop's rejection of Rome's misuse of it. We were told that the bishop has the line item veto regarding King III of Constantinople. Isn't it interesting that Canon 3 of Constantinople ends up in Canon 28 of Chalcedon. If he had a line item video, why do you keep bringing it back up? Didn't everybody believe that Peter was the vicar of Christ on earth? So how's it up, end up at Canon 28 of Chalcedon? And then we were told, and it's interesting, Mr. Butler's been citing from Meyendorf many times, but you notice he didn't cite from Meyendorf about Canon 28. You know why? Because I cited from Meyendorf in my opening presentation. And he confirms that Canon 28 was in the Byzantine collections and in numerous other places. He does mention that there are people in the West who did not accept Canon 28. Well, of course. Of course, the Roman bishop didn't like it. Well, that, 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 that's terrible. I mean, doesn't that mean he has some primacy? No. He's the bishop of the one see in the West, and he doesn't like Constantinople getting a second position. This is political, folks. Nothing more than that at all. Mr. Butler gave you just a very small portion of J.B. Lightfoot's citation about the letter of Clement, and he misled you badly. He does say this is the beginning of the rise of papal primacy, but this is the whole section that Mr. Butler left out. Because he went on to say, There is all the difference in the world between the attitude of Rome towards other churches at the close of the first century when the Romans as a community remonstrate on terms of equality with the Corinthians. That's a little bit different than what we've been told. On their irregularities, strong only in the righteousness of their cause and feeling as they had a right to feel that these councils of peace were the dictation of the Holy Spirit and its attitude at the close of the second century when Victor the bishop excommunicates the churches of Asia Minor for clinging to a usage in regard to the celebration of Easter which had been handed down to them from the apostles and thus foments instead of healing dissensions. Even this second stage has carried the power of Rome only a very small step in advance towards the assumption of a Hildebrand or an Innocent or a Boniface or even of a Leo. But it is nevertheless a decided step. The substitution of the Bishop of Rome, and notice Mr. Mr. Uh, Butler kept telling us, we've got to do away with this myth of the distinction between the Church of Rome and the Bishop of Rome. Listen to what Lightfoot says. The substitution of the Bishop of Rome for the Church of Rome is an all-important point. The later Roman theory supposes that the Church of Rome derives all its authority from the Bishop of Rome as the successor of St. Peter. History inverts this relation and shows that, as a matter of fact, the power of the Bishop of Rome was built upon the power of the Church of Rome. I can understand why the full citation would not be read in your hearing. And I'm not saying you have to cite every single thing someone says, but if you're going to cite a scholar who says X, Y, or Z, if he then goes on in the next paragraph to totally destroy your point, don't cite him. I think that's just simply honest to people who may not have the opportunity of going out and getting books like this and checking out the accuracy of the statements that are being made. 
We are told, for example, that Irenaeus by Mr. Butler gives a list of all those popes after Peter. If you actually look at Irenaeus's list, the first bishop, he doesn't talk about popes, of course, the first bishop of Rome, he does not say was Peter. He says that Peter and Paul ordained the first bishop of Rome. Again, just a little matter of historical accuracy. And then, interestingly enough, he cited from Vermilion. And if you were listening closely, maybe he just didn't hear me when I cited it. I don't know. But I cited the exact same passage. Now, how could we cite the exact same passage for two completely opposite positions? Because of what's called, as I said, the Peter syndrome. You see, when Mr. Butler sees what Vermillion said, Vermillion talked about the church being founded on Peter. And so he reads it. But if you read the section as I quoted it to you, Vermillion is citing it, mocking Stephen, the Bishop of Rome. Now please, folks, this is what I'm talking about. We must take these fathers in their context. We can't just simply take a little snippet out of here and a snippet out of there. Let's look at what they said in totality. This is an important issue. I just want you to think about one thing in regards to the historical section of this debate. We've heard all sorts of things about Peter and exalted language, haven't we? But have you heard anything that even begins to demonstrate that the early church believed what Vatican I stated, that Peter was made the vicar of Christ on earth with absolute jurisdictional authority over all the world? Were you given any information like that? If you do not receive, remember Vatican I said it was the unanimous consent of the fathers. We've had to hear Mr. Syngenis go so far as to say, well, but you see, you've got to realize they believe that Peter's faith and Peter are the same thing, so we can change all the numbers here, and so you've got more, now you've got, now you've got three quarters of the fathers who believe this. Well, let's, let's get away with that, even if I, I think it's ridiculous. Let's, let's say that's true. You're still not up to Vatican I, are you? Vatican I said, unanimous. It's not the case. And yet Rome uses the anathema upon us for standing on the truth of history. Think about that. God bless. And we start out by saying that any man who can be converted by the Catholic controversy written by St. Francis de Sales certainly can be converted back by logic greater than this. And by his own testimony, if we can prove to him that the truths we have portrayed this evening are in fact reality, we would expect Mr. Sengenis to debating on our team the next debate. Now, in my closing 10 minutes, I'd like to say this. The Roman Catholic religion has stated two propositions boldly and unambiguously. In Vatican I, dogmatic constitution on the church, the first is that according to the gospel, the primacy of jurisdiction over the entire church of God was promised and was conferred immediately and directly upon the blessed apostle Peter by Christ the Lord. Notice, according to the Gospel. We have examined the Gospel to find out if this is accurate. We have scrutinized Matthew 16, Luke 22, John 21, and we have thrown in Isaiah 22 as well. We have found these texts do not lend the least support for the Roman Catholic claims of Petrine supremacy. We have also looked at a number of other passages which show Peter to have been locked out of the modern invention of popery by virtue of his own testimony as being a fellow elder among others. We have also presented a candid portrayal of Peter from the Word of God. We found Peter to have been given prominence but not primacy. We found Peter failing in a test of faith and doctrine. We found Peter one and equal among many apostles who were the foundation of the Church of God but never did we find Peter superior. There is no doubt from the testimony of the scriptures that Peter was no more and no less than the other apostles. In fact, we built a case for the apostle Paul as being the better candidate for the fiction of the Romish Pope rather than Peter. In fact, we would prefer it in light of Rome's consistent denial of justification by faith alone and the mighty Apostle Paul's absolute contradiction of Rome at this point. The second position of Rome is that the primacy of Peter 
is to be believed and held by all faithful according, and I quote Vatican I, according to the ancient and continual faith of the universal church, and to prescribe and condemn the contrary errors so pernicious to the Lord's flock. We have shown, in fact, that the testimony of early church history denies the Roman Catholic religion its most cherished, desired possession, that of a clear-cut historical witness to the papalness of the see at Rome. Rather, we have shown that the earliest testimony of the Church of Christ knew nothing of the Roman papacy. We have marshaled up account after account, some from Catholic sources, which deny the existence of such supremacy and such an office of power and authority. We have shown that the entire concept of Romish rule among the early church fathers is imported from the 19th century and cannot be justified from an unbiased reading of the early church fathers. We do search in vain for affirmation of Vatican I of the Romish rule from Clement of Rome. We search in vain for the affirmations of Romish rule from Vatican I, one in Ignatius, in Polycarp, in Tertullian, in Irenaeus, Cyprian, Jerome, Augustine, Ambrose, Athanasius, and Chrysostom. Remember, the burden of proof is to show that Vatican I can be repeated in the early church fathers. Vatican I cannot be repeated. Vatican I cannot be substantiated. And that's what this bait centers around. The burden of proof is not to prove that one or two of the early church fathers may have thought that Matthew 16 refers to Peter as the rock. Rock doesn't equal papacy. Rock does not equal Rome. The burden of proof, as I will remind you from the councils, is that Rome indeed can be established by the early church fathers on the basis of what Vatican I claims for Rome, which is absolute rule and authority. We search in vain for Romish dominion of the early ecumenical councils. We cannot find the Romish Pope at Nicaea, 325 AD. We have said the great Arian controversy in this most important of church councils was settled without Rome. May I remind you of Canon 4 of the Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D., Canon 4, but in every province the ratification of what is done should be left to the metropolitan. Not Rome, but to the individual metropolitan. I remind you again of Canon 6, the Council of Nicaea, let the ancient customs in Egypt, Libya, and Pentapolis prevail that the Bishop of Alexandria have jurisdiction in all these, since the like is customary for the Bishop of Rome also. Likewise in Antioch and the other provinces, let the churches retain their privileges. These two canons have not been denied from the Council of Nicaea. At Constantinople, 381, Rome actually was denied supremacy in Canon 2 and Canon 3. Let me review with you Canon 2. The bishops are not to go beyond their dioceses to churches lying outside of their bounds, nor bring confusion on the churches. But let the bishop of Alexandria, according to the canons, alone administer the affairs of Egypt. And let the bishops of the east manage the east alone. The privileges of the church in Antioch, which are mentioned in the canons of Nicaea, being preserved. And let the bishops of the Asian diocese administer the Asian affairs only and the Pontic bishops only Pontic matters, and the Thracian bishops only Thracian affairs. These canons cannot be denied. We quote Canon 3 of Constantinople again. The bishop of Constantinople, however, shall have the prerogative of honor after the bishop of Rome because Constantinople is New Rome, a political and power-based priority that has nothing to do with biblical interpretation with regards to the Roman papacy. At Ephesus in 431, Rome was not even represented. At Chalcedon in 451, Rome said only legates. Canon 28 was confirmed by Constantinople on the basis of political importance. We find no hope 
for Roman supremacy at Carthage in North Africa. Not only defied by Cyprian, but also in the throes of the antipope controversy with the Novation of Rome, there is no hint of the alleged Roman superiority. In fact, the bishop at Rome is hard to distinguish between Novation and Cornelius during this time. And that was the entire North African position. Who really is the bishop at Rome? We can't tell. Even if we could, we're not going to lend ourselves to being obedient to the dictates of the bishop of Rome. Now, my opponent has stood up here and asked a simple question. Give us something better than the Roman Catholic religion. What do you have? in the place of what we are trying to prove. My friends, I submit to you that we have the Word of God, which has always been sufficient for the faithful by way of salvation and sanctification. It is His Word that He has given unto us by which all things must be examined. This Word has proved sufficient throughout the ages. It proves sufficient insofar as Origen was concerned, when he quoted his understanding of Matthew 16, 18, Mr. Butler, Origen writing in 254 says, if you suppose that on this Peter alone the whole church is built by God, what would you say about John the son of thunder or about any other of the apostles? Is it at all possible to say that against Peter in particular the gates of hell shall not prevail, but that they shall prevail against the other apostles and against the elect? Let us consider in what sense it is to be said to Peter and to every Peter, quotation, believer, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom. Consider how great a power the rock has and how great a power everyone has who says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You wanted one, I give you one. I give you another. St. Athanasius, Patriarch of Alexander, writes, You are blessed who are in the church by faith and who dwell on the foundations of faith, for this is what is written, Thou art the Son of the living God, which Peter confessed by the revelation of the Father. No one, therefore, will ever prevail against your faith, most beloved Brethren, I throw in a third, St. Ambrose, if I had the time, they asked for one, they asked for two, they asked for three, I submit St. Ambrose in my closing remarks. Thank you. If you like our YouTube channel, please subscribe by clicking on the subscribe button and then by also clicking the bell above to get an automatic update whenever we produce another YouTube video for our See Answers TV channel. Please share our videos with your friends and relatives. May God bless you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. See related videos by tapping or clicking screens.